I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, Conversations on Catholic Faith and Culture. Episode 52, Fast or Feast or Fast Food. I'm here with Charlie Deist, and we're going to talk about nutrition, but I think in an unusual way. Um, I'm going to describe what might be a, a, a typical fasting and feasting regime in the church, and then we're going to discuss how uh, Charlie's approach to nutrition um, actually fits in with this. And so what we're looking for, uh, a little, little bit sort of directing it towards that, um, is a, a harmony between the science and the, the spiritual approach of, of centuries. So Charlie, first of all, great to have you here. Nice to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me back. <laughs> okay, so uh, why don't we... I, 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 uh, you're sort of sitting there dumbly, so I'm, I'm doing all the talking, but you will get a chance in a second. Um, but why don't I describe a, a, a typical, fa- very traditional fast, and then we'll go through it stage by stage, and of course the feasting, we mustn't forget the feasting, um, and then we'll see how that fits in with your with your ideas. Um, and the, the, the first thing we should say is that um, if, if you're going to try this at home, um, Neither of us are qualified experts. This it's Speak our for own. Yourself, David. Well, <laughs> no, no, it's true. We're, we're not medical professionals, yes. and all this should be kind of qualified with uh, the usual provisos. Yes. So you're free to take advice or not, but it's it's your responsibility. Yeah. Um, and we're just telling you what we do. Think, take it like that. Okay. So. Uh, I'm going to describe the typical sort of Eastern fast, which is sort of very rigorous and structured uh, and might be a nice way of starting. And, and the, the, the perception is that this is one that goes back uh, through centuries. And so it might be a nice template for us to work with. So what we have is a pattern during the year of uh, fasting, uh, which means uh, s- a certain amount of denial. So maybe during the day, no food at all until Vespers. Um, and then when you do eat, uh, denying yourself from meat at the very least, and sometimes also no dairy and no fish either. So it's a sort of full protein denial. Which step you take depends on where you are spiritually. I, I've tried to start doing this in recent years, and at age 57 and someone who hasn't grown up with this, I'm easing myself into the more difficult versions year on year. But so that's Wednesdays and Fridays during the the year. And then in the approaches to the big feasts, uh, there are additional fasts. So most obviously Lent, uh, where Monday to Friday, um, no meat, no fish, no dairy. Again, with that understanding that people enter into this, into the spirit, which is appropriate to them as their spiritual director or spiritual father has, uh, or, or the, the discussions with their spiritual directors have uh, led them to. Um, where, but on Saturday and Sunday, it's relaxed slightly. So whatever you do Monday to Friday, you, you might introduce dairy if you weren't before. Um, but it's still fasting, so no meat at all regardless. Um, and you're playing with the steps a little bit depending on whether you're a monk or a lay person or how used you are to this. And then, during the course of the year, there are 
two or three great feast days, and there might be shorter fast periods. So, so Advent in the lead to Christmas, obviously, and then other feast days, there might be 10-day fasts as well, um, which typically are just more of the Wednesday to Friday fast. So they're not as uh, deep as the Lenten fast, but they are extended, you know, for 10 days or something like that. So we'll come back to that. Why don't we start with the, the, the year through the year routine and you just tell us how that fits in with, with what you do um, with fat and protein and all, all your ideas. Yeah, yeah. I, in a way, I'd actually like to get away from the macronutrient discussion and focus on what, what you're talking about, which is the wisdom of the church. Yes, great. We can contrast it to, I think, two conflicting uh, strands of conventional wisdom that dictate how people behave today. One is sort of the... Uh, the diet mantra that you need to be constantly restricting calories, so it's mm. eat less. Uh, and then the other is the reaction to this. People who try it find that very quickly they, you know, become hungry. Some yeah. people even become cold or they, you know, lose their uh, motivation. And these are things that no one can put up with for any extended period of time. Maybe an ascetic monk who's dedicated to practice and has that connection to God can okay. do this. But yes. if you don't have that, you're just going to find that eventually you get hungry. Yes. So the the reaction to that has been uh, sort of, th there's uh, nothing that we can really do. It, it's just a, a um, it's all kind of futile and it's, you know, eat everything all the time. <laughs> uh, and this also has a lot of problems. Last time we talked about uh, the the problems of eating carbohydrates and sugar in excess, uh, which can lead to insulin resistance. So sort of you're constantly flooding your bloodstream with with insulin. With uh, the pancreas secretes insulin in order to to transport that sugar out of the bloodstream, and your cells eventually build up a resistance to this. And uh, and and that's just one of the ways that eating sort of everything all the time leads to to other kinds of problems. But I think that the wisdom of the church comes into play with the, the understanding that uh, we do need to deny ourselves sometimes. And there is a role for discipline. Uh, willpower it can be sort of cultivated in this way. And one of the best levers for building our overall willpower is just the daily decision to, uh, to, to moderate our intake of, of certain things and then periodically to moderate uh, some of these other more indulgent things like meat uh, or or dairy, the, the things that go into baked goods. Uh, so I, I think that there's a lot of wisdom there, and people are starting to rediscover that, interestingly, from a secular point of view, and then that leads them to discover that this has been a, a religious tradition the whole time. Yes, you say from a secular point of view, their arguments typically come from an evolutionary philosophy, don't they? Right. This is what the caveman did, and, and try to fit it with their imagined pattern of life as it would have been before civilization before civilization yeah you, there was always the the possibility of going an extended period without having food so the idea is that our bodies adapted to this environment and uh, in, there are certain biological processes that are optimized for this more cyclical eating pattern so one of them that uh, that i wanted to touch on is uh, the, the process of autophagy where our cells are recycling some of the junk that accumulates, little you know, organelles and just excess DNA uh, accumulates in the cells 
and we have a mechanism of self-eating. Autophagy is the Greek for just you know eating eating oneself. The cells consume this junk when they don't have other proteins available. Uh, and when you're an infant and you're on this cyclical eating pattern, it happens naturally. But as we get older, we lose that ability uh, unless we introduce some sort of fasting discipline. Right. I'm going to come in and say, we always have this little conflict and say that uh, I would prefer, regardless of the evolutionary argument, I'm less uh, convinced by that. Right. I, I'm a little skeptical. Um, I'm more inclined to say that God made us to worship him mm. and given that we are fallen people I, I'm not taking ignoring that but um, that uh, part of that is that for spiritual reasons primarily we we have that this regime of fasting and feasting and it, it allows us to delight in the produce that he provides for us and to be aware of that it comes through his great benevolence and that we are made shall we say, to be adapted to the spiritual life. Mm. And that's what's governing it. We don't need to worry about which it is because ultimately we look at what, where we are now and what's the best way to do it. But uh, yeah. I'm going to throw that into the ring. Oh, man. Uh, man does not live on bread alone. <laughs> yeah. It's true. And, okay. and you could take a more modest just tr argument for tradition, which says that before there was refrigeration, uh, this I never had to live with this. I don't know if, if I'm, I'm probably you probably <laughs> had refrigeration for for your entire life too. But uh, I think that you hear people talk about uh, growing up where their their uh, mom would cook dinner and then everything would have to be sort of prepared just for that meal. You'd make enough for that meal, and there wouldn't be anything to eat until breakfast the next morning. Yeah. So there's naturally sort of a fast between dinner, 6 p.m., 7 p.m and the next morning. So right there, it's a 12 hour fast right. that we lose when we have the ability to snack into the night. It's interesting you mentioned that, but um, we did have refrigerators right. in the dim dark days of the 1960s when I was growing up. Sure. Uh, and in Britain where, it's always should be remembered that in those days, 60s, 70s, pre-Thatcher in Britain, the standard of living in Britain was very much less than the US. So. Uh, it, it's, I'm not doing this, you know, when I was a lad, we had it rough. We, we, I came from a relatively, you know, reasonably well-off middle-class family. We weren't rich, we weren't poor. But um, the, the, the expectation was a lot less. So in my household, uh, my mum, who governs the way that we ate, uh, she learnt how to cook and the, the patterns of feeding, if you like, from her mother, my grandmother who definitely, so th those lessons were learned pre-refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And so we still lived to a certain degree in that pattern. We're adapting to refrigerators. So we would have the, uh, first of all, meat was very, very expensive. So you would have a Sunday joint, there's the feast. Um, and then it was made to last through the week. And it didn't sit in the fridge, it sat out on the, uh, on the, the you know, on the sideboard. Um, and so it would be hot, hot on Sunday, cold the next day, uh, and then probably by Thursday, um, it's you know you, you're not quite sure about it. So you have a curry or something like that, you, yeah. or a stew where it's cooked for a long time, mm. um, just to uh, make it uh, tasty. Yeah. So anyway, there's there's my sort of 
uh, childhood reminiscence. I'm, I'm getting hungry, and uh, people listening won't know, but we're recording this on a Friday, and so sticking with the, the meatless Friday is going to be a little bit harder, having had that image in my head of a big roast. I don't even know what a sideboard is, but it's, it's, it seems like a, a very uh, delicious presentation. Do you really not know? I do, okay, no, I, all I, these sort of linguistic... Kind of like a, well, it's a, it's a surface that's, okay. that's on the side, but and would typically that's where it's the unit in which you keep the plates and the okay. and the cutlery. There'd be drawers and there'd be a cupboard underneath, rather like yeah. a you get in the kitchen now, the kitchen unit. But then there'd be a top, and that and onto that you would put the fruit bowl, the food which you would go to, uh-huh. um, and some things would sit there for a few days. Yeah, yeah. Going back to the sort of secular. Uh, Convergence with the the religious tradition and the and the wisdom of of the past, there is a, a particular form of fasting that is meant to ease a little bit of the the denial, but that could still provide some of the benefits, uh, which is just restricting protein on certain days. Okay, and so there's a, a guy named Josh Whiten who uh, has a whole protocol he calls it. So again, it's not a, a diet per se. It's not about just caloric restriction. It's a discipline or a protocol that involves restricting protein for anywhere from you know 16 to 32 hours uh, or longer. I mean, but but it's a it's a prolonged uh, protein restriction in order to induce autophagy without having to be so hungry all the time. Now he's coming at that from a sort of health point of view. Yeah. 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 But we can easily see the how that's compatible with this pattern of no meat Wednesday, Friday, right. which could also be no dairy, no fish. And, and, the, and, and dairy and fish will also have protein. So if you're trying to keep yeah. under something like 15 grams, which is a really small amount of protein, you're going to get trace amounts from different things. Yeah. But it means you can still eat nuts, you can have you know, fruit, you could have uh, potatoes, you can have mm. uh, you know, carbohydrates, you can have fat, and... Uh, it's just a matter of keeping under that limit for for basically meat, dairy, and uh, you know there are a few vegetables that are higher in protein. Right. Okay. Um, so that's the Wednesday, Friday. Mm. Um, how about these longer periods? And you know, does does the nutrition science that you've seen take that into account? What might be a Lenten fast, which is maybe deeper and more prolonged? Is it? A, you know, uh, on occasion? Yeah, so most of the people in the nutrition community are, are looking at intermittent fasting as something that is, is done. It, so it's not, uh, you know, it's not chronic caloric restriction, but it's a longer window. And I guess I would uh, want to clarify in the, the Eastern tradition, Besides restricting certain foods, what are the practices around just not eating for some amount of time? Well, it, it's, you don't hear about that so much. So that, that usually it's about restricting the, the, what you eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did notice in, the, you know, in my Melkite calendar, which, yeah. <laughs> which is what I tend to follow, which is something like a sort of reasonably strict but middle line. It's not the absolute sort of monastic observance. Um, they do say that um, it's uh, on the fast days. It's it is from uh, vespers to vespers. <laughs> so in other words, you go to bed, 
and then um, you don't eat until after vespers, till the following evening. Yeah. Um, and, and then when you eat, uh, you have the restricted diet, if you like. So certainly within the pattern of eating, they do. Uh, it is acknowledged um, that there is uh, total abstention as well, in, in, in full fasting, right. um, which I think is done just once a year by recommendation in the once or twice is it in the in the Roman Church we uh, have uh, what is I guess on Ash Wednesday yeah and uh, there may be one other day but it's it's not a, a, a frequent thing although I think that uh, it, it can be from a health perspective I think that there's you know the form of intermittent fasting some people do every day which is just skipping breakfast mm. maybe even skipping breakfast and lunch there was some military general who at one time was kind of popularizing the warrior diet, which is just eating one big meal for, for one big dinner and going through the whole day. I find that doesn't work that well for me. Um, one thing that is possible cause for concern there is that a really big meal can do the same thing that carbohydrates do with your insulin levels. It spikes your insulin. Okay. And a lot of the health arguments around fasting revolve around insulin, so you want to keep lower levels of insulin. Um, insulin tends to, uh, it, it, it's oxidative stress, it, it's sort of a, a general stress on the body that leads to aging and weight gain and, and things like that. Okay. Um, so that's why you have your sort of coffee with cream, just sort of keeping you ticking along in that sort of abstention period. Is it? Yeah, it could be. I think it prevents me from binging so much during the, at the end yeah. of the day. And that is one thing, uh, you know, people, intermittent fasting is the, the buzzword, but no one talks about it. the flip side of uh, intermittent gluttony, which is a, a danger to watch out for. <laughs> That's sort of my feast. Yeah. A little, a little too, uh, too indulgent. Yes. I, um, I, I come from, I, I definitely an intermittent, intermittent, Feaster. Uh, I had a huge appetite. I grew up, uh, there were four of us, three lads, um, and then Ruth, our sister, was the youngest, of about a similar age. And basically, it was a race to eat because the, the, you knew there was never enough seconds for everybody. Mm. And so we all raced. Yeah. Um, and that habit of eating fast and eating in the, everything that came in front of you uh, lived with us, and so, so we all the, the three boys, all or three men now, all have that. And one guy used to joke that just like cows have four stomachs, uh -huh. he thought the Claytons had an additional stomach where the where potatoes went selectively, <laughs> so they could have room for everything else because we ate so much. Um, one thing I've noticed is that um, since I've been moving towards. Um, the pattern which, which we discussed last time with uh, don't be scared of fat mm -hmm. uh, so have plenty of butter cream um, protein and vegetables basically uh, and then reduce the carbohydrates mm -hmm. and starch relatively and what I found is that my appetite reduces that I fill up much more quickly anyway so it tends to regulate it in my in my case I don't know yeah that's something you'd notice or yeah yeah, yeah, I think that that is a pretty reliable finding of people who, who switch to a high-fat diet is that the fasting becomes easier uh, and it's, it's easier to just eat within a, a shorter window within the day and then fill up and go until the next day. Right. 
So <clears throat> let's let's just come back to the the uh, the pattern of fasting. So it it sounds and feasting and feasting. <laughs> well, we'll focus on feasting. Uh, let's do the feasting first before we sort of uh, yeah. go sort of do a sort of general comment. Um, so the feasting. This in the in the religious context means that, uh, in my experience, that you there's a real you're really made to feel guilty if on a Sunday you don't have dessert. Mm. <laughs> it's almost the reverse. You you've got to eat badly on on Sundays because it's a feast. So you know you shouldn't be even thinking about the fact that you deny yourself an extra portion of cake or something like that, right. um, which. I've res- I don't do that. I don't have a sweet tooth anyway, so it's not so difficult for me to resist that. Mm. But um, so, uh, what about the pat- patterns of eating more? Is it just a case of not desisting um, from the fast? How would how would you approach that? Yeah, and in the parlance of the nutrition kind of uh, life hack community or the intermittent fasting community. Instead of feasting, they use the term refeeding. Refeeding. So it's it's just uh, you know on a total calorie level, you might be consuming just as many calories uh, as you would spaced throughout the day. So if you if you're thinking about it for an adult mm. male, I don't know what the recommendations are, what the averages are, but it's over you know probably 2,500 calories. Uh, and so I think that uh, sort of if you're if you're backloading it into the evening or afternoon to evening. Uh, Having a window of several hours where you can have maybe a couple of meals, not necessarily just doing, you know, putting it all there on your, on your plate, and and, uh, and I think that the there is a danger of, uh, to you know, giving yourself an allowance for for anything just because you've done the fast beforehand. Uh, in particular, there are some people who talk about doing kind of a cheat day where you know they eat clean for for six days out of the week and mm-hmm. then one day of the week they let themselves do whatever they want and that's never worked for me and I think that the reason has to do with just a sort of mental conditioning where it's hard for me to switch back and forth completely between those two modes and if I eat a donut one day a week then I'm gonna have the taste for the donut the rest of the week uh, so I think that refe- refeeding means you're no longer denying yourself the good things, the things that you know are good for your body and that yes. fuel it and will, will keep you um, healthy to the next meal. Right. So we've talked about you know what mm. those things are. I, I uh, put into print my kind of staple foods in a, a, a PDF. That That's a great booklet, by the way. You said it came out on the email. Mm-hmm. Um, that should be. Uh, can, can we put that on the on the website or my website yeah. which is unnaturalmethod.com it's, yeah. it's right there at the top okay uh, and you just you you uh, give your email address and and uh, it's a about a 30 page shopping list uh, but it's not all text it's a lot of kind of graphics it's and, it's and good infographics it, yeah well done it's terrific yeah well thank you it's it, yeah. uh, the culmination of a lot of Kind of think, blending a little bit of economics um, and even some of the politics of it, because you find that at the grocery store, certain mm. things are particularly—it's easy to fill up on junk food because it's the cheapest stuff right yeah. there in the center of the store, and it's subsidized in a lot of yeah. cases. Where things like wheat, corn, 
get commodified and corn in particular gets turned into high fructose corn syrup. And so this was the path that, that the West took kind of after the 1970s where the dogma became low fat uh, and in order to replace the, the flavor and the, the satiating goodness of fat, we, we had to fill up the, the food supply with all kinds of artificial sweeteners and uh, so people gravitated towards, you know, sugar, eat sugary cereal for breakfast and this yes. turns out to be the exact opposite of what you want to do. And so we have a diabetes epidemic from, uh, from people just constantly bombarding their cells with this supply of, of cheap glucose, um, which is not what our, what our bodies are meant to thrive on. Right. One thing that, that's, that's oh, it's also on, it's, yep. it's also kind of a uh, a guide to eating on a reasonable budget because I've you know one thing you get a degree of freedom if you're eating out less often but still things like you know grass fed meats people assume that it has to be really expensive but there are all these little shortcuts that I've learned and so mm. whether it's the seven dollar bag of uh, three pound bag of blueberries at at Costco or the Kerrygold butter that you Put liberally in your vegetables, it, it, it comes out to being a much, I think, more cost-effective diet. Yeah. Especially if you factor in the the medical costs that you'll be paying if you don't uh, get off of the the stand, quote, yes. unquote, standard American diet or the the SAD S A D <laughs> standard American diet. I have just got my Costco blueberries and a big tub of sour cream. Mm, yeah. Uh, and so I had my first sort of healthy dessert last night, which right. was great actually. Yeah. yeah. It can be. You know, once you recondition yourself to think about the whole health uh, picture, then I think that it's, it's more satisfying to eat something like that than a piece of cake. Right. I, I yes. Um, now, I, one thing that is worth exploring a little bit, I think, is the approach to carbohydrates, and this is something that quite often a sort of staple um, when you're in the fasting mode mm. would be a big plate of pasta with a tomato sauce or something like that. So um, there wouldn't be protein in there, but mm. you've got the, uh, very high carbohydrates. So, um, so and not sugar. By the way, sugar, um, sweet things, uh, are, we're asked not to take those. And um, even on the, the days when you're relaxing, Saturday and Sunday, mm. don't have dessert is part of the recommendation. So their instincts are against the sugar as well, which is quite good. Mm on the fast at least, but um, they're pretty relaxed about starch and carbohydrates and grains and that sort of thing. Now, how would eating those fit in with that pattern and, and your, you know, from the, the nutritional point of view, ignoring the spiritual lessons? Yeah, there are a few different questions within that. And I think the first has to do with just grains as a category of food, what, you know, are uh, are grains uh, part of a health healthy or heart healthy diet as mm. the American what is it the, the the cardiologists basically tell us or have been telling us and, um, and and I would argue that grains in general are one of the least nutritious foods they have the most uh, costs for the the fewest benefits and uh, that doesn't mean that uh, we should strictly avoid them altogether I think that you know, since the, the Neolithic era began, we've developed a little bit of a, a tolerance for some of these things. And um, also, I, I don't think we want to get too neurotic about yes, I agree. calling yeah. anything, you know, anathema. <laughs> yes, it's, it, 
there's already a, you know enough um, dogma out there in the nutrition world. I don't want to add too much more to that. Um, I think when it comes to mean carbs, one thing to keep in mind is the idea of separating them in time from from fat, because the carbohydrates tend to increase the the insulin uh, signaling, and so you uh, you get uh, your your cells are are being told to store uh, either burn the calories that are in your bloodstream, burn mm -hmm. them on the spot, or store them for long term. And that means that whatever fat you eat with the carbs, fat is uh, nine calories per gram, so it's much denser. Uh, you, you know, if you eat a cheeseburger, you're getting both the carbs, the sugar, which spike your insulin, and you're getting a ton of calories from the meat and the cheese inside. Right. So that is, is the perfect recipe for, uh, for obesity because it's, it's almost like, this is to go back to the evolutionary logic, but it's uh, the autumnal diet. It's what an animal craves right before winter. So during autumn, you, you eat acorns, which are about 50% fat and 50% carbohydrates. Okay. Perfect food for fattening up. Okay. Um, and then the last thing, wheat, uh, wheat does have some protein. So if you're trying to stick to this protein restriction, uh, better to eat sweet potatoes. They have a better nutrient profile and they don't have the, the gluten, which is the, the protein of wheat. Okay. And some people find that when they eliminate gluten, they feel better, and then they add it back in, they feel worse. That might mean that they had some sensitivity to begin with uh, to gluten, and not everyone necessarily has a celiac disease, which is the more extreme form of that sensitivity. Mm. But there are some of these things that you know not everyone was able to adapt quickly enough yes. to that transition from uh, from pre-agriculture to grains being the, the staple food. Okay, so have have the pasta, but no, eliminate the cheese and the and the meat, and then also I, I just it, I just thought about this from what you're saying the, the fat so mm. the butter or the oil olive oil, mm. um, and I just remembered actually that in the strict diets you eliminate olive oil, mm. so oil, vegetable oils as well right. from this fast uh, sorry the strict fast I mean not the strict diet. Um, so on those deep um, fasting days in Lent, um, even olive oil would be restricted for if you were really throwing yourself into it, which again says have your tomato sauce and pasta, mm -hmm. you know, with gay abandon almost. <laughs> right. Well, you'll never catch me saying that about about pasta. <laughs> okay. But All right. Yeah, I think that if you know if you don't have the gluten sensitivity, yeah, uh, there there is another thing that I'll mention, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think that there's more and more research coming out about uh, kind of the, the the effects of uh, pesticides that are used for for farming wheat, like glyphosate, uh, and this is a chemical that's sprayed on plants. Um, it kills the insects, but the plants are genetically engineered to be able to survive the the poison, basically, that you're spraying on them. And so this is in our wheat supply, particularly in the U.S., not so much in Europe where they have laws against mm. this kind of crop. Uh, it's a hotly contested issue, and some people say that it's, it's perfectly safe. I think that the precautionary principle bodes in favor of limiting the... Uh, the commodified grains in the U.S. Uh, so you can you can actually get sometimes uh, like heirloom wheat pastas or a, a quinoa 
pasta, right. lentil pasta they sell at, at okay. Trader Joe's. <clears throat> but if, if we work on your principle of, I, I'm probably not going to go for, a, what, what was the phrase you used for those pastas? The heirloom. Oh, right, uh, right, right. What, what did you just say? I, yeah, heirloom uh, seeds, you know, more... Uh, okay, so the sort of ancient GMO, pre... Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So I, I definitely can't be bothered to root okay. those things out. Okay. So I'm going to buy um, pasta off the shelf, but I'm going to. Uh, but what I have now is a picture where, okay, not a huge pile, but have it with the vegetables, but then if you do so, avoid the fat and the protein. Right. And you're probably... Because we're only doing this on the occasional fast day yeah i'm not it's not my regular diet it's, yep. that's going to be fine uh, yeah. and uh, and, I, and the other thing is i'm not conscious that it makes me feel ill or dread or bad you know if right. i did then i might probably i might notice that i have that intolerance um, that you describe yeah it is very personalized and you discover when you go deeper down the rabbit hole of uh, of sort of health you find that some people switch to a vegan diet and their health problems go away. Other yes. people switch to a carnivore diet and their health problems go away. And there's everything in between with the autoimmune protocol yeah. where people might be more sensitive to dairy and different things. I find that I do pretty well with dairy. Uh, you know, butter is my best friend. Uh, <laughs> one, one snack that was suggested uh, for the protein restriction days by Josh Whiten was a little bit of sauerkraut with melted butter on top. And uh, I know to some people that probably sounds... That sounds good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. What about ghee? Do you know what that, that mm -hmm. is? That My brother, was Rob, was asking about that because apparently Indian... He loves Indian cooking. Yeah. Um, and you know, curries and the like. And they cook in that button. Apparently, you can, you can fry at very high temperatures. Mm. So ghee is clarified butter, I think. Right. Is that right? Yeah. So how, how do we stand with that? Yeah, I love ghee. Uh, okay. it's, it's a little expensive, uh, but it, it, yeah, it's delicious. It has sort of a sweetness to it, and uh, and it, it is better. I, I don't know if uh, so. It, they've reduced the the butter and take out. I'm not sure what they take out from it, but it's uh, it's e easier on people with certain food sensitivities because okay. it doesn't contain the, the irritant that some dairy has. Right, and apparently it's it's good. It allows you to fry at high temperatures without altering the the, the um, flavor. Uh, yeah. So. Did we talk about oils last time? Uh, no, we didn't actually oils. go into that because I, I I was thinking when I mentioned the olive oil of your reference to seed oils and yeah. I think we had a conversation when I was just putting my canola in the frying pan in the right. kitchen the other day. So yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, you can talk about you know good fats, bad fats, uh, and, and my uh, fake trademark good fats <laughs> includes things like coconut oil, olive oil, butter, uh, avocados, and mm. avocado oil. These things that are derived from sort of, uh, you know, whole foods are what you want to avoid are the industrially processed seed oils. They call them vegetable oil, but they're actually made from soy. Uh, canola oil is made from rapeseed. Um, I don't know what what uh, a rapeseed actually is. I don't know if I've ever seen one or touched one because they're not very good for, for much else. You wouldn't eat this yeah. and think that there's a lot of nutrition in it. Okay. But when they put it through this process that includes you know, uh, bleaching, and uh, then they, they 
press the oil out and have to wash it in all okay. kinds of solutions. Uh, it creates um, uh, canola oil that is not particularly stable uh, when it's exposed to heat. And in the process of producing it and transporting it across the country, uh, it, it oftentimes is getting heated up and cooling back down many times. Uh, and each time it does that, it, it uh, kind of oxidizes the oil and makes it something that really, you know, I, I wouldn't want to feed to my worst enemy, uh, knowing what I know about okay. uh, how much it can accelerate the aging process. It can thwart, you know, the effort to, to lose weight. Um, That's interesting. And in restaurants in particular, they use it as a deep fryer. And a lot of restaurants will not change that oil for months or even years. So they're, <laughs> they're cooking the you know, wow. Brussels sprouts or whatever. In the, and so it's hard to avoid if you eat out. But, uh, but at home, you can, you can use these cooking oils that have a higher tolerance for heat, like ghee and coconut oil. Uh, right. Olive oil is decent, but, but it's not as good. Ghee, apparently very often available from um, Asian... Uh, uh, I'm British, so for us, when we talk about Asian, mm -hmm. we tend to think of uh, I tend to Indian. think of Indian, Pakistani, okay, origin. But um, people from the Indian subcontinent, uh, there are um, stores which offer foods, particularly for people who eat that uh, that cuisine. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have some right here on uh, San Pablo. Do we? Okay, yeah. well, I'll ask you where that is. Okay, so. Um, so that apparently is where you get the ghee from, Rob was telling me. Yeah. So, great. Okay. Ethnic grocery stores have uh, a special place in my shopping guide because you can get a lot of really good deals. Uh, 99 Ranch is another one, the Asian grocery store. Okay. Uh, very good deals on coconut milk. Uh, I didn't include this in the guide, but this is a little bonus. Uh, chicharrones, pork rinds, which it, it sounds like a junk food, but it, it's just with one ingredient. It's uh, it's pork skin and it's air Love fried. It. Not it's not deep fried. Oh, what is that? I okay. This <laughs> takes me back to the British pubs. Yeah. Uh, um, pork pork rich. scratchings, they call it. Yeah. Uh, it's rich in glycine, which is so. I was I didn't realize when I was buying my bag of pork scratchings in the pub, it it was so nutritious. Anyway, okay. Right, right. Uh, and so it's good. It's good for your skin. It, it has a lot of nutrients, and uh, wow. and I just eat you know a couple at a time, and I consider it a nutritional supplement. That's a great snack as well. I bet. Okay. Um, funny you mentioned the the um, rapeseed. Okay, it, they grow that in Britain, and, it, and the thing about it is that it becomes a, a debate for sort of another point of conflict for ecologists um, and farmers, uh, so that it, for a reason you might not expect, because it has a, an intense bright yellow flower. Um, and so the, the British countryside where it's grown um, the, the hills, instead of being the soft green, are, are bright yellow. Hmm. And so at one level, people are saying, well, is this, is this beautiful? And pe people are trying to work out, am I free to enjoy this? Because it looks yellow, it's, it's a lot of flowers. Um, and oilseed rape is the, um, is, the, is the way that it's referred to as a crop. Um, but uh, I think a lot of others people feel, and I probably was inclined to this, that even though it is a, a crop and it's this yellow color, it, it has something of the artificial mm. look about it. And 
So I now feel sort of, yes, I, I, I feel free to condemn it based upon what you said. We shouldn't be growing that crop anyway. It's, and, and furthermore, it, it, it leaves the landscape looking less beautiful than it did if you have the, the more softer. They, I would say that the, there is colour in the ordinary crops. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the beauty of the farmed landscape now. Right, right. Um, and which I always think is con in some way my instincts tell me is connected to the quality of what's being produced in the field, that none of these yeah. things are separated. And well, the Way of Beauty podcast, I think yes. it's appropriate that we consider how the, the landscape of a monoculture compares to the landscape of more Absol pastoral farming. Absolutely, yeah. And so what this, what this says is that if you, let if, if you stop trying to direct the diet, it's almost as if you let people prior to being introduced to all this stuff. I mean, now we've got to go from where we are, which might cause problems, but the natural inclinations of people of 60, 70 years ago, mm -hmm. if you'd let that be the demand, it would have furthermore probably ended up with people having better diets um, and, further, and more beautiful countryside. Mm -hmm. um, and we shouldn't underestimate the quality of life. If, if, you, if, if, the, if the countryside looks beautiful and farmed, it, it's a bit like we're sitting here in the courtyard and, and uh, as you know, I'm always talking about the beauty of a garden. It has an impact on the quality of living. Um, and uh, these things are all interconnected, I think. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, maybe kind of a, a closing point for me is uh, talking about going back to fasting uh, and the difficulty that a lot of people have, myself included. Recently, I've uh, I've not been able to fast the way that I used to, or I've just kind of fallen out of it. Uh, and I think what one thing the the longer in a prolonged fast, if you get used to it, um, twenty four, you know, the hungriest you'll be is in the morning of the first day of a prolonged fast. Okay. And then as time goes on, the hunger does actually gradually subside. But uh, being a, you know, if you're constantly surrounded by tempting food, that's gonna make it harder. I think the best thing that you can do if you're starting to sort of feel a, a mid-afternoon slump is to get out into nature. And I don't know all of the, the reasons for this, but, uh, but I do think that being surrounded by plants and natural beauty it takes your mind off of it, and it brings you to a place where your you know, man does not live on bread alone. But or go on a retreat. That's that, there. You go. Maybe that's why we go on retreats when we when we do these things. You it could be take yourself away from the the temptation yeah. and into nature. Okay, that's terrific. Is there anything more we need to add? I, th I think that's no. I, and since uh, since I'm not an expert on the all of the the biological mechanisms, I'd refer people both to the, the Whiten protocol, Josh Whiten, uh, we'll put a link to that. And then there's also a, a pretty good guide to intermittent fasting. I don't think it's the last word. It, most, it mostly focuses on the autophagy, uh, the, the benefits there, um, some of the, the, the ways that people have cured themselves of diabetes through a combination of uh, intermittent fasting and then tending to eat a, a higher fat, lower carb diet. And that's uh, produced by P.D. Mangan, who's kind of a, a, a health and fitness All right. person, uh, personality online. And we can link to that too. Okay, I'll, I'll put those on the show notes. Um, tell us again your site, which has this w wonderful booklet. 
Sure, it's a natural method uh, based on the kind of my, my fitness uh, approach is modeled off of uh, a French naval officer from uh, the, the early uh, 20th century, uh, Georges Hébert, who had la méthode naturelle. And so a natural method is a, uh, a way to become healthy by uh, living more naturally, not moving in the other direction. Right. Of, uh, you might say that what Pilates is to Germany, and the method naturelle is to la France. Could be. Could yeah, be. it's developed about the same time, I think. Um, and and the, it's a natural method dot dot com. Dot com. Okay. So that we'll just I'm just going to try and recap. Uh, so my approach would be that let's start with the spiritual and work our way down. So this seems to be reinforcing, even from a health point of view, uh, the practice of following the fasting and feasting. Uh, patterns of the church as done traditionally and as you do this um, think about if you're going to take a stepped approach to denial because not everybody throws themselves wholeheartedly into the full hard fast mm -hmm. uh, that is prescribed think about a stepped reduction in protein and then fat and then if you introduce carbohydrate on those fast days do your best to eliminate the proteins and the fats. Is that right? Or the, certainly the fats. Uh, but the proteins are gone anyway because we're on a fast. Is uh, that, that would be uh, fair. I think um, you don't... The, there's the intermittent fasting, then there's these special fast days. Yes. On the special fast days, I think, you know, I'll, I'll even call it grains as penance. Uh, you know, eat your eat your grains. Start to recondition your mind to think of this not as a special treat, but almost as you know something that that you're you're gonna uh, use is, is an inferior source of nutrition, but it will give you the benefit of the uh, autophagy. You know, the, the yes. self eating okay. of the cells. Right. Excellent. But you could also do a, a a fast where you just eat fat and restrict the carbohydrates and the protein. Okay, that's great. So, um, I think that's, that's it. How, what, a, what a great discussion. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. <laughs> You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.